With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Steve Hinshaw, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UC San Francisco and of Psychology at UC Berkeley. Today's essential program features the NBA's Kevin Love, UC San Francisco's Dr. Alyssa Eppel, and our moderator, NBC Bay Area's Raj Mathai. Five initial points. Number one, with the continued COVID-19 pandemic, it's no surprise that the number of people with moderate to severe depression and anxiety has continued to increase. The same holds for many other mental health conditions. Number two, youth mental health is particularly worsening, especially for girls and young women, as I predicted in my 2009 book, The Triple Bind, Saving Our Teenage Girls from Today's Pressures. It's not just genetic and biological vulnerability, it's also the toxic messages that far too many teens receive. Number three, we're also in the midst of a suicide epidemic across all U.S demographics, but especially for young people and for middle-aged and older adults. Number four, evidence-based treatments exist for these conditions, but still lag far behind needs. We need greater research funding, greater opportunities for training, and enhanced efforts to decrease this 20-year gap we have between discovery and access to care. Number five, and finally, despite far greater public knowledge of mental health issues than 50 to 60 years ago, public attitudes lag considerably. In the mid 20th century, cancer was a highly stigmatized condition. And it was forbidden really to put the diagnosis of cancer in the obituary of a deceased relative because it was thought to be a, an illness that basically signaled the loss of will to live. But as we all know today, cancer is a huge cause. Still, behavioral and emotional disorders are believed to be signs of weakness or inevitable inner flaw. Stigma toward mental disorders remains unconscionably high. As a result, we all lose. If we continue to ridicule and exclude those battling behavioral and emotional conditions, the economy suffers, families are devastated, and millions of creative and potentially thriving individuals are not allowed to contribute. In my view, mental illness stigma is the last frontier for human rights. I know whereof I speak, given the professionally ordered silence my family endured about my dad's lifelong severe misdiagnosed bipolar disorder as I was growing up in Ohio. This intermingled with his brilliance to almost take his life at several of the country's worst snake pit facilities of the time. We have to overcome the shame, the silence and the internalization, especially for family members. To do this, many levels of, of effort are needed parity, non-discrimination, better media depictions, evidence-based care, but most of all, disclosure and humanization through storytelling, I believe are the true answers. So on that note, please let me introduce today's guest. On the surface, Cleveland Cavaliers star forward Kevin Love has experienced great success. A five-time All-Star, he contributed to an NBA title with the Cavs in 2016, defeating our own Warriors in a dramatic seventh game. And as you can tell by my tone of voice, this is a traumatic experience for me still and for many members of our audience tonight. 
Kevin was also a member of the gold medal winning U.S. national team at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. But he has also suffered from depression and anxiety for years. He was one of the first NBA players to openly discuss mental health challenges, making headlines in March of 2018 when he admitted that he had suffered a panic attack during a game. He had always previously viewed talking about mental health as a form of weakness that might derail his athletic success. His courage has been a huge signal of the sea change in attitudes of late. In 2018, he established the Kevin Love Fund to provide tools for people to improve their physical and emotional well-being with the goal of assisting more than a billion people over the next five years. Joining Mr. Love today is my incredible UCSF colleague, Dr. Alyssa Eppel, professor and vice chair for adult psychology within the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. The award-winning Dr. Eppel studies psychological, social and behavioral pathways underlying chronic psychological stress and holds a doctorate in clinical and health psychology from Yale. I'm also pleased to introduce our moderator tonight, Raj Mathai, news anchor for NBC Bay Area. He joined the station in 1998 as sports director and has been the primary news anchor since 2011. We now present a candid and heartfelt conversation about how depression and anxiety affect both high performers and a wide range of everyone else across our society, especially during COVID. It will also include what can be done to create more support for those in need. Please welcome Kevin Love, Dr. Alyssa Eppel, and Raj Mathai. I'll sign off, but I'll be on the bench uh, with a darkened screen if, if you want to ask me any questions uh, that might help the discussion. Thank you so much. Dr. Hinshaw, thank you for that uh, warm introduction. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Eppel, nice to see you. And, and Kevin, great to have you on board as well. I think I'm going to be kind of a viewer in all this. I know I'm the moderator, but uh, I think so many of us experience, have experienced so many things just in these last 10 to 12 months that... Uh, I think I speak for a lot of people. We, we want to hear both of your takes on, on what's going on. Kevin, let's just start with you. How are you doing tonight? How are you feeling physically, mentally, and where, where are you coming to us from? Uh, I'm doing great. Outside of, um, you know, being out with a calf injury right now, uh, I feel pretty good being able to just work myself back, be around the team a little bit more because we're not traveling at the moment and just feel like, I don't know, just like this entire time has been through COVID-19, just, you know, part of you know, that greater enemy that has brought us all together. So, um, no, I definitely feel feel good in this time and, you know, feel like we can, you know, while we're here, we can make a big impact. Sure can. And Dr. Apple, good evening to you. Uh, how busy have you been in these, in these last 10 to 12 months? I like to say I was COVID popular. So <laughs> I've been studying stress for about 20 years and chronic stress and acute stress and you know, when we can make stress help us and help us perform and when it turns toxic. So this whole, all these stages of this pandemic and, and all the mixtures of the types of stress we are under has kept me busy, both talking about what we know, seeing how the science can help us and just coping with my own life. I mean, this is just, here we are, you know, 2021, we're not, we're not quite out of it. And I could spend a lot of time describing the, the types of uncertainty stress and what the science tells us about um, what this is and why it feels so heavy. You know, we don't, we can't feel ease in the way we're, we're, well, I don't want to say we did before because we had a lot of problems before, but, but now we are all as you know, as Kevin said, united against this one common enemy or storm, but we're all in different boats. That's how I like to think about it. We all 
are coming to this with different resources, strengths, challenges. And so it's, you know, it's a hugely rocky ride for, for most people and not everyone. There's a whole continuum of what's happening for in all the different boats. Well said. Kevin, uh, you, you came out when I remember reading that essay in the Players' Tribune 2018 about what you were feeling at that time and throughout your life. Since that, since, since you came out with that, with that story, how has your life changed in terms of the way you've been received, whether it's at the arena or just at the grocery store or wherever you go? Well, a lot has changed. Um, you know, I'll keep coming back throughout this entire talk about uh, that common enemy, but I think it, more than anything, I just, and I'll talk about this more as well, is that I just have my identity wrapped up so much in, in my sport and just being a basketball player in such a very unhealthy way. And so when I wrote that in 2018, uh, it was something that, uh, whether it be anxiety or depression, I had dealt with for you know my entire life, really since I can remember in you know, my early teens or even before that. So you know, it, it, it allowed me to you know, kind of play all my cards and just set everything out there. I always say you, you, you can't heal what you don't reveal. But for me, it was really scary. I lived with the idea that especially as a young man. And I was taught by my father who grew up, you know, was born in 49, grew up in the sixties to never show weakness, you know, don't cry. You don't, you know, I had no tools to express how I was feeling. So getting it all onto the page for me was a great chance, you know, not only to, to help myself, but to help others. So I really think that that common enemy for me made me feel like it was, it was much bigger than myself and has made me more comfortable in my own skin than I've ever been. So that's actually what led me to, to start the Kevin Love Fund. We have a great team going right now. I know that we'll get into that later, but uh, there's a second art, uh, secondary article that came out that wasn't just about uh, my anxiety. It was actually about my depression as well. And Dr. Apple, I'm super excited to actually talk to you about, uh, as we mentioned off, offline, the imposter theory or imposter syndrome. Actually, I, I spoke about that today and actually in, in reflecting back over all of COVID, I've been thinking a lot about regrets, writing a lot about regret, but a lot about imposter syndrome and why I felt that way growing up. So the only way I could do it is connect the dots and continue to learn and continue to have these conversations. But my life has changed in a major, major way after writing that article because I don't feel alone. And I hope that others can see this and those numbers that we talked about uh, prior to it being us three can continue to uh, or start to trend in the other direction, whereas we don't really know the long-term effects or what are going to come out of COVID-19. We're going to come out of all this social injustice, what we're going to do moving forward with that. For me, the wildfires that, you know, hit not only, uh, you know, the West Coast, but but San Francisco and, yeah. and where I grew up in Portland, Oregon, where my girlfriend's from in Vancouver, BC, Seattle, the entire Northwest. And then we have everything that happened with the election uh, and what happened just at the riots at the Capitol. So it just continues to become more and more complex. And I think that this is this in particular in the world of mental health uh, is going to be needed more than ever coming out of this. Uh, Dr. Apple, we got a lot coming your way. So hang tight. I want to talk about the, the imposter syndrome there that Kevin mentioned and also how we're going to deal what our future, not just you as a doctor, but Kevin and I and everyone on the call, our future looks like post-COVID. Uh, Kevin, though, really quick. So how does this work? You're, you're, you're an NBA star. You got a big money contract. You got a gold medal. You got everything. You got good looks and great family. How and why? And that's sorry for, the, for, for coming at you in, in a in just a layman's terms, but how and why can you get bummed out? 
You know, for me, it's like I mentioned, connected the dots looking back. I think I didn't really understand it. I don't know if I fully do still. Um, but the first, the first thing that I did is I had to look myself in the mirror and say, Hey, listen, I I'm, I'm really dealing with some stuff that others can't see. And, you know, with blinders on sometimes, maybe you can't see you're affecting the people around you uh, in a negative way, or, you know, you're breaking their heart. And at the same time, it's, you know, it's obviously collateral damage with them, but you're hurting yourself. But my earliest memories were, I mean, it was just long, long lasting bouts of, of, of dread and, despair and i i enjoyed my childhood i i really did there was just times where there was that low level thread in the pit of my stomach that i could never explain and i still feel it now i still feel it even with all the therapy that i've done in the last few years uh, getting my medication right making sure that i understand my triggers and what to do in that context but uh, those depression bouts for me were something really scary where i didn't want to get out of bed where i didn't want to outside of basketball was, was, you know, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to face my parents. Didn't want to face my friends. I thought I'd be looked at as weak. Uh, so that only escape was, was playing basketball. So anytime that I was hurt, I got two broken hands. I've dealt with knees that, uh, I just felt like I, I didn't have anything that, that added value to this world. And, you know, it's, it's a really hard for me. It's really hard for me to, to understand the why, even after doing all this work, but, I always say success is not immune to depression. Uh, I mean, I look at Robin Williams and Kate Spade and, and one of my favorites of all time, Anthony Bourdain. I mean, there are people that, you know, were just larger than life and personalities and great family and money and come from great backgrounds, but it just shows you that it doesn't discriminate. I mean, this, and the numbers say that, and it's, it's something that's, again, like I said, going to be continued to evolve. I think, you know, this is a question from a, scientific and data spot where, uh, you know, Dr. Eppel can speak to, but, you know, for me, sometimes it can be the smallest thing that can send me into a spiral. It can be like, I wake up in the morning, I taste my coffee, I taste terrible. I must be terrible. I'm a horrible person. There's numbers of triggers that set it off, but I've, I've, you know, continue to try to ask myself why this happens and how I can backtrack and try to figure out a way to combat it moving forward. Because even now, 13 years into the NBA, um, you know, a number of things going for me. My girlfriend just, you know, broke up what we're doing here and called me on the FaceTime. Like I have all these great things, but yet some days I just don't want to get out of bed. And sometimes I don't even know why that comes on. There's other reasons where, you know, whether it's family or, or my girlfriend or, basketball is taken away from me or just things are going bad. And I understand that, but there's the other part of it where it's just a dark cloud that hangs over me. So it's a, it's a never ending battle. I, I understand that it's likely never going to go away, but this is something that I can kind of put over there. I can, I can compartmentalize it. I can deal with it in different ways. And not only do I want to inspire others to, to understand that and work on themselves, young men and women and all ages and all demographics, but you know, finding ways to, to continue to, to heal myself because I just have to continue to peel back those layers. But I think you, you can tell I like to talk, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, three years have been a, a great in peeling those layers back and trying to understand it better. Doc, Dr. Apple, jump in there. Uh, the question, why do some of us feel like this way and then and what to do about it? Many of us have probably heard people say, you know, I've had I've had cancer and I've had depression and I would never, ever wish depression on anyone. 
it is, you know, it is a disease and it causes phenomenal suffering as, as any mental illness does that you can't quite understand unless you've been there and you've seen the dark side and you've been in the spiral. Now it is a continuum. So we can understand, you know, right now, 40% of the adult population has clinical symptoms might be drinking, anxiety, depression, and we all know what that feels like and how, how tough that is. But imagine that on steroids when it becomes a severe clinical depression. The why is it, you know, it's a complex heterogeneous disorder, so it's not a simple question, but it's, it runs in families. It clearly has the genetic component. And then our life experiences can also shape our vulnerability to it. So um, what I wanted to point out was just this, this, the role of stress is so interesting because it does set us up for vulnerability. It does pave the way for depressive episodes. But like Kevin pointed out, uh, once we have depression, it's, it's a kind of a habit that we can go into with even a tiny stressor. We're prone to those, that kind of activating that network of negative thoughts, negative feelings, negative th that spiral. It's just it's like that for some people. And so it is just like you might think of diabetes or hypertension. If you have a severe case of it, you need treatment like medications, therapy, et cetera. But at this point, there's, it's so common that we want to think of it as a continuum. And there are all sorts of other ways to maintain balance and prevent worsening of depression that are about uh, managing stress, managing getting support. And I'll, I'll talk later about some of these biohacks or lifestyle methods that really hack our body to try to, to um, reduce depression and help our, you know, help m m elevate our mood. It is work to have a to have a chronic disorder means you're maintaining balance every day. You have a balance. You have another job in a sense. So it's it can be exhausting. And I think what you pointed out, Kevin, about just the awareness of how the mind works, that is a phenomenal switch that can go on when you realize, I don't have to believe these thoughts. These are thoughts and this is how my mind works. So it is step one, this kind of emotional awareness and awareness of how our mind works is a phenomenal gift. Some people may go through life without ever actually getting that level of insight into how their mind works, that metacognition. But when you go through all this training and therapy and work like you have, you not only get it, but you need to work that system and recognize that those thoughts are just thoughts and not real. So I want to point to the thought of the, um, the, 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 the lack of self-worth and the imposter complex. Um, unless you wanted to interject there, Raj. No, go ahead. I, I'm curious about the imposter complex. Kevin brought it up, and I think we, we'd all be interested in this. You know, just in terms of depression is an equal opportunity, um, unfortunately, condition. It is, it doesn't discriminate. So it is most definitely, in fact, can plague people who are high performers even more. And in the, you know, the last few years with you coming out and other athletes and, and Hollywood superstars has made a shift more than anyone like me, any doctor or mental health professional could change the culture and awareness and the stigma. What you've done is phenomenal to come out with it, to have the bravery and the vulnerability, 
and show vulnerability, but then to show you can speak about it and reduce the stigma. Um, so you've shown that anyone anyone can have it, even if it looks like they have everything on the on the outside. And uh, this is um, there's been, for example, awareness of Olympic athletes are very vulnerable because their eggs are one basket. Their worth is their performance. And so there was a documentary just this year. I do think it's a result of this movement that you've been part of, Weight of Gold, that does talk about Michael Phelps and others have talked about what it feels like to look in the mirror and say, my value is as a swimmer. Yeah, and if I can say Michael Phelps said, after the Olympics, I quote, after every Olympics, I feel I fall into a major state of depression. That's Michael Phelps. That's a legendary athlete of our time. Mm-hmm. And how does he... Uh, deal with that and attack it, it's a daily chore to wake up and find your purpose that day and remember that that it's not it's not the metal anymore. Um, so there's this kind of eggs are all in one basket and diversifying your what you value and what, what your passions are is so important. So one of the um, the things about imposter complex is we all have that to some extent in our professional roles Imposter complex is thinking that you got there through luck, you're not good enough, people will see that, you haven't done enough, you can't be expert enough. And so it's very common. So in students, their job is getting into college and doing, you know, you know, looking smart. And so I just have, you know, two quick stories. One is when I've lectured to rooms of hundreds of undergraduates and said, who has imposter complex? You just see, you know, maybe a few hands. Then I show the data. The data is overwhelming about the majority of people feeling like they got there and they don't belong and other people are smarter. Once I show them the data and I ask again, who here has imposter complex? I can't see a hand that's not raised. And so it's this realization of it's safe to actually admit that you're having those thoughts because everyone has them. It's a, you know, it's part of the kind of universality of how our mind works. I had a, you know, an imposter, of course I had an imposter complex. I, I, I'll just tell you day one at, um, at Stanford, the admissions director said to us, and we're all shaking as, you know, new students wanting to do well on one side of you, you know, you might be next to an Olympic athlete. And on the other side in our class, we have someone who's changed, you know, a country's laws, someone who's already done this. These are 18 year olds. I was, um, you know, wanted to actually escape at that moment. I was practically having a panic attack, but then you learned that the person next to you actually regardless of their accomplishments, feels the same way you do. They have their doubts, they have their own stressors. And so it was, uh, you know, if you want to induce imposter complex, you say something like this admissions director did. But then when you get to know people and in a way that feels safe where they, where you, you know their own struggles, that's the only thing that helped it was actually having friends who I would have, who she was describing, who were, ended up being... And Kevin, does this all ring a bell? Is this something that you've gone through or, or learning about now yourself? Absolutely. I mean, I, I felt always the need to prove myself because I didn't have the solid footing, right? I didn't have any idea how to express myself. And, you know, I wanted to achieve myself out of the depression or how I was feeling and having that complex, you know, it's like even when I got to the, the mountaintop or, you know, I'm constantly putting that carrot outside of what I consider success, even when I got there, I would achieve it and say, okay, what's next? And I'm still left with the same brain that I always had. And my mental filter was 
always drawn towards the anything that fit that negative uh, narrative. And, you know, I would disqualify any positive things that were said about me. I'm like, I don't, I, I, I don't deserve this. I know I've, I've worked hard for it, but yet I still am not worthy of these accolades. I'm not worry, worthy of people saying these nice things about me. It could be anything. Were you able to celebrate, for example, winning the NBA title against the Warriors in 2016? Was there a genuine celebration for days or weeks after that, or did you kind of check out? It's funny. It's, it's, a, it's a balance of, yes, elation, which comes and goes pretty fast. And you look back and you say, okay, it was, you know, the journey that got us there was the most gratifying thing. But I think for me, it, with, with my brain and even in my heart, too, it was relief. <laughs> and it, it, I, I've said this to a lot of people that even in that time, I was, I was really depressed, actually. Um, and going through that moment, yeah, it was, it was extreme relief. Um, but if you can remember, at the same time, I got a really bad concussion in game two. And, and missed game three, came back for game four. So I was battling with that. We all know Oracle Arena got extremely loud. But no, I think more than anything, it was relief. And, and honestly, feeling like, you know, until we got our rings on ring night, I was like, oh, wow, we really, we really did achieve this. And, and, you know, look at the team. I would always give credit and bounce credit off anybody else because if it came to me, I would say, you know, it almost make me, on top of that, very, very anxious. A few months ago, one of your NBA colleagues, Paul George, uh, said of the Clippers, he was in the NBA bubble where all the teams were, and he came out publicly and said, you know what, I've been battling depression. Uh, there were several games that I've played, and he said, quote, I wasn't there mentally. He was there physically. First thing I thought of, a lot of people thought of, was you. Um, have you chatted with him, or what do you think he went through there? I did. I talked to him, actually, uh, the day after it happened. And listen, we are, I wouldn't be here... Uh, and talking about this, if it wasn't for DeMar DeRozan. And what's interesting about PG, Paul George, and DeMar, and really anybody in sports, anybody in any walk of life, for that matter, is everybody's uh, struggle is unique. Everybody's struggle is unique. And for me, I'm, I'm from suburban Portland, Oregon. Uh, and, you know, I grew up two-family home. I went to a great high school, great college. I played in the NBA for, for 13 years. I've been able to do some, some great things on and off the floor, yet it still follows me everywhere, right? And I've tried to change my relationship with it, which I've been able to do a good job of, but where it shows that it doesn't discriminate is, is you know, I was able to get my foot in the door and kick that door open because DeMar, and DeMar, you know, he comes from, he grew up in Compton, California. Um, he didn't have an easy upbringing. And, you know, he didn't have an easy transition even into college and into the NBA. So I thought, man, if, if this guy can do it, somebody I've known my whole life, didn't, under, didn't even realize that he was dealing with this at, at that level until we actually started opening up and talking about it, I said, man, then, then I can do it. And hopefully, in my mind, it was like, all right, we're going to continue to pay it forward for these people that hopefully it has a snowball, a domino effect, if you will, and people continue to share their messages. And uh, like Dr. Eppel said, there's been a number of people um, in the public eye, a number of people that have a big social footprint that extends, uh, you know, farther than, than maybe anybody. If you mention even the, the Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, I mean, he came out and publicly 
acknowledged that he had dealt with depression. His mom had dealt with depression and it's in, it runs in his family and it's genetic. So, I mean, the more we have that, the, the more that we're going to be able to, to destigmatize this and start educating people, provide them with the right tools and continue to just invest in, in research. Cause again, it's going to be this, the long-term effects of the last 12 months are going to be, you know, extremely heavy on people's hearts, but even more so I believe in their heads. What's step one? to acknowledge that this is happening? Uh, if, if someone would watch, whether it's a parent, whether it's a high school athlete, whether it's a kid or an older person, what's step one if, you, if you're going through depression? How do you get out of it? Yeah, I mean, Roz, I think you, you just said it. For me, it was, you know, and, and I don't know if we'll talk about the, the panic attack that I had, but I had it in such a public setting um, in November of, of 2017, and I had nowhere to go. I, typically, when I, was, when I was younger and leading up to that point, it always manifests in rage, but I always had somewhere to go. Um, but it, it, in this instance, I had a, a panic attack that I really thought that, you know, I couldn't catch my breath. You know, thing, I was about to, uh, you know, I felt like things were going black. I had to find a place to, to relieve myself, but I was surrounded by teammates and surrounded by team personnel. This was, this was during a game, during an NBA game. During a game. So I had to run back to the locker room. I'm looking around for something that I don't know what the hell I was looking for. Uh, ended up on the, uh, uh, our head athletic trainer's office, the floor. Then I'm on oxygen. Then I go to the Cleveland Clinic. They run all the tests. Nothing. So I'm like, what just happened? What, what just happened? Like, I, I've never experienced anything at this level before where, you know, at, at one point in my mind, I think I'm going to die. I can't catch my breath or I'm having a cardiac episode and my, my, you know, I can't get any oxygen in my brain and my heart rate is way up. And this, this is after halftime. We had just called a timeout. Like I'm not, I'm not breathing heavy, but that was exactly what you said to answer your question. It was acknowledging it, looking in the mirror and saying, Hey, this, this isn't adding up. So what steps are we going to take? You know, you've put it off for 28 years now. Um, you know, what are you going to do to, to combat this? What are you going to do to work on it? So actually later that week, I, I had met uh, for the first time with, with a therapist and I started going through, you know, that progression. And it's, it's why I say that's, you know, everyone's unique in their struggle and that's unique to me because I mentioned you know, the, the investing in research, but also the tools, like nobody, not everybody is able to afford seeing a therapist. Not everybody is able to afford, you know, getting magic, uh, uh, medication, excuse me, receiving medication, like, like I do and be able to take medication every single day. So there lies the problem. Like, how are we going to move forward and, you know, fund, which is already so underfunded, uh, mental health resources. How are we going to start funding that moving forward? But for me, it was acknowledging Listen, I have a problem and I'm, I'm willing to explore any and every avenue to, to get help, not only, you know, for other people, but uh, first and foremost for, for myself, because and I say it all the time as well, uh, Dr. Eppel, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can attest to this as well, but it's, it's the biggest thief of, of, of human potential. You know, I look back and there's, you know, people always say, oh, I don't regret a thing, but there's a lot that I regret for not looking in the mirror earlier and saying, hey, listen, like, Kevin, you need to address this and address it now if you want to have uh, not only a happy life, but a meaningful life. That's very honest. That's, that's really honest. Thank you. Dr. Eppel, how do you know if, if someone's watching right now, hey, I think I'm on the fence. Shall I seek help? What's, what's that turning point? You know, I, in Ke and Kevin, I share that. In 2016, I couldn't breathe, went to the ER, and 
they're like, you're fine. There's no blood clot. There's no heart issues. You're in great shape. And I said, all right, so what the hell just happened? So I, I think people have gone through, but if you're on the fence, maybe that hasn't happened to you yet. How do you know when you need help? It's a great question. Sometimes we're so used to feeling that way that we're not even aware that it is a clinical level. We don't have to suffer the way we do every day. So the, uh, the, the lovely thing is that you could take a quiz in two minutes on the web and see how you score on depression or on anxiety. And then it comes down to your local, you know, supports. Are you, um, you know, what, if you're connected to a healthcare system, most people come through for anxiety and panic attacks, they discover it in the ER. <laughs> so that, you know, that's a common entry route. Another one is in the doctor's office. And uh, what, you know, what we're trying to do at UCSF is push out a whole continuum of care of really increasing the dialogue about emotional well-being because we're all at risk. And people who already have the condition are really suffering and at more at risk. And so it's this awareness and discussion of what, how can we prevent, uh, how can we push all of us toward better well-being and prevent this, you know, this big um, period of chronic stress, economic stress is a huge predictor of depression right now, how we can together be, you know, pushing that back because we are, we are in this epidemic. So you can diagnose it on the web. The symptoms are, you know, feeling the, the sadness or loss of interest. The, the way we diagnose it is just technical. You just, have you felt that way for two weeks? Uh, but it's really, you know, it's a, it's a lot of thoughts and it's a lot of symptoms in our body. So some of the thoughts are feeling, you know, guilty, worthless, helpless, hopeless, I mean, who has not felt helpless and hopeless over the last year at some periods? It's been hard economically or parents trying to homeschool their kids or, or, or students uh, on these Zoom calls. Is there a silver lining here? Has COVID maybe prompted us to, to seek help? And, and maybe if it wasn't for COVID, we would all just kind of be living with it uh, without seeking help. Is there a silver lining? Well, that's a good question. I think we are at an inflection point where there's so much emotional suffering in front of us, and especially in our youth, that we need to change things. We can't just go back to business as usual. We can't just kind of, you know, dust off this kind of pandemic year and move on. We're in, we're in serious trouble. We are, because this is a, a chronic and recurrent disorder, people who do have PTSD from this year or, or depression are now, you know, in really needing to up their self-care and get treatment. So it's a long-term situation that we're in with, with mental health. This is not kind of a, oh, there was a stressful event and I recovered. Um, so what does that mean? It means that we are be forced to build our infrastructure and become more resilient and have these dialogues about mental health that we've never had before at all levels of society and institutions. That's where we're, that's, I think, where we're, we finally kind of have broken through the, um, the, you know, the silence, the kind of prison and stigma of talking about this because we can't, because it's everyone and it's all of us. So with climate, for example, it's here. We have a climate crisis. We can now feel it, see it. We have the smoke and fires. Finally, we are changing things in a big way. 
And so I think that's what's happening with our mental health crisis too. Not that we've solved anything, but we are, first step is awareness. And now we're talking about what are we doing? And we need every level of care. We need all the digital solutions. We need peer counselors. We don't have enough professionals, you know, to be treating everyone's depression right now when you have 40% of the population. So we need to change the culture to be more supportive and to be less harsh. So, you know, we talked about oh, a symptom of depression is feeling worthless. And it's just a foundation of our culture, our capitalist culture, to feel that we need to achieve to have worth. And so, for example, as a way of culture change, I have uh, some someone I know who struggled with depression. Uh, she has she came to a retreat of mine and said, I'm going to put up a billboard in L.A. And all it's going to say is you are enough. And we and I thought, oh, you know, that sounds great. It's a good message. Will people understand it? What's going to happen? I don't know if it'll have any effect. There are now close to 10 billboards and people who are really struggling, people who have suicidality, are, are actually taking that statement to heart and visiting one person, visited it every day. It's a movement. You are enough. You don't, you're, you who are listening to me, you probably don't believe that, right? We don't believe that truly, that we don't have to perform and we don't have to make a lot of money and achieve and to really be enough. I mean, in my in my industry, as, you know, as a researcher, you're only as good as your last paper. You got to keep churning out achievements to feel self worth. I fight that. Kevin, we talk about culture. Uh, has the culture of the NBA changed? You brought up actors and entertainers and, and NBA players like yourself that have come forward with this, but has it really changed, or is it still kind of a, a macho, tough guy thing where you know, don't play hurt kind of thing? No, I, I, I really think it has changed. Um, I can say this because um, not only has the NBA um, established for there to be a licensed therapist on every single team, on all 30 teams, but guys are really using it. I mean, I see it firsthand with our team every single day. Um, I know for a fact that, you know, at the league offices with Adam Silver, he says, you know, you'd be surprised at so how many people have, have come up to me and asked, you know, what resources do we have available? Not only for myself, but in my family, my, my father, my mother, my brother, or sister, like this is, you know, inherent from our family. And I, you know, I told him, hey, listen, I'm, from what the numbers say, and Dr. Apple can say it better than I can, what, you know, the numbers out there you know, it's, it's indicative of what's, you know, going on around the world, not just in the NBA. But I would really say I couldn't put a number or a percentage of how many guys in the league, um, you know, are really struggling. But just in the sheer volume of people I've been approached by um, and people that have either come out publicly or are dealing with it by themselves. But the sheer volume of people that have come up to me is is very high. And I'm thankful for that. I really am because it makes me feel like, you know, I'm a part of that bigger picture. I'm a better that, you know, because it is such a, uh, you know, Dr. Apple said it too. It's, you know, it's almost like a crisis of hope. It's, it's the fear of a, you know, failed future. It's so much anxiety around this failed future. And, uh, you know, there's so much depression. Um, if I don't succeed or if I don't do this, especially, um, you know, where everything has to be so fast and you have to fill so many slots and have to have the next paper or have, you know, I'm only as good as my last game. It's, 
you know, it's the thought of a meaningless future. So like it's depression, and anxiety, there's so much of that. So I can, I only think that the NBA is helping to inspire hope in young people. And it's great. It's amazing that we have a social footprint in the game is so global that we can, you know, put out these PSAs for kids. We can talk about, you know, we can say on a PSA, Hey, look at these billboards in LA that say you are enough and that'll inspire to do more. And tens of, you know, we're leveraging that to tens of millions of kids or hundreds of millions of people that love NBA basketball and, you know, hang on our every word, every action. I want to dunk like LeBron. I shoot the ball like Steph Curry. Like it's, it's really cool that we have that platform to be able to do that because I know for, uh, damn well that I, I hung on every word that Shaquille O'Neal said. He told me, you know, to eat this or do this or make a free throw, which he never did. I would do it. Charles Barkley, like, you know, you got to pay respects to the people that have come before you. But I feel like the NBA is so amazing. And you're seeing in other sports leagues too. But I'm so thankful to be a part of a league that not only has our backs in speaking about things like we're here doing now, but they, they, have the resources and they really in their hearts they they want to push us into talking about it they want to push us into actually making an impact in our communities and beyond so uh, again long drawn out answer but i do feel it's it's amazing what we're able to do as a collective 450 players in the league no what you say on this call is just inspirational and i'm just looking at our chat room here and it's, it's blowing up but uh, just a lot of praise from all our viewers uh right now uh just uh say kevin just working through removing the stigma of depression um dr uh, apple how do you talk to a parent right now whose kids might be battling depression i have two young kids um but how do you talk to parents who see their kids or teenagers or young adults kids uh, if you can't get a job because of COVID how do you talk to parents right now what do you advise them to do? let's talk about that but let me just say you know in terms of kind of the reach and the power of yours and NBA's platform uh, my my son um, who I've always wanted to hear one of my lectures on stress and depression for um, the last 10 years hasn't watched one um, and then I told him I was going to be talking with Kevin Love and he loves uh, uh, fantasy basketball and Kevin Love, he knew more about you than I did, of course, um, because I'm a nerd. But uh, and so that's the type of reach, you know, it's like, oh, finally, he's going to listen to his first lecture because it's it's really about someone he admires. It's <laughs> very sweet. How do you talk to parents? So this is so important. And parents are um, the you know, the the kind of front line of mental health for our future. For And so we have put on our psychiatry website a bunch of short videos about how to talk to your kids right now, and especially special needs kids, how to help them with sleep, with anxiety, how do you talk about the pandemic. I think it's super important to protect our children and our youth from the news. I, it is demoralizing. We have a lot of moral stress. It's hard for us as adults. They don't need to know. I mean, there's age-appropriate little bit of knowledge as different um, challenges arise. And, you know, the, the racism movement is obviously a positive light out of this, not without its stressors and triggering racial trauma for many people, but it's um, part of the the good that will come from this period of um of you know moral unrest and change so uh, you know that's that's different i think we're all pumped up from martin luther king day i loved your post on that kevin um so 
but but in terms of the bad you know bad players and violence protection and uh, talking to them about what we're seeing is just a few people. It's it's easy for us to think that the world is a really unsafe place, and that you know many. Um, but but really putting it in perspective. So controlling media exposure. This is one way that anxiety gets under the skin. It's funny if I can jump in. It's funny you say that about kids. Obviously, I deliver the news nightly for NBC here in the Bay Area, and for the first time in my 25-year television career. It hit me. You know, I, I would like a police officer say I could usually leave my job at the station. But last several months, I would come home, sit here at midnight with the, the lights out and just digest what, what's been coming out of my mouth and reading my interviews, whether it's the social justice movement or COVID or people losing their jobs. So I'm not sure. Is it just kids that need to be protected or maybe we need to limit how we consume our own news because it, it's, it's taxing? I couldn't agree more. And my colleagues and I just posted on our website today how to maintaining balance right now during this period of political unrest is about also wise media exposure. Read instead of watch it, those scenes of the riot at the Capitol over and over. We the more you watch those scenes, that more it's a predictor of of anxiety, PTSD, and even heart conditions years later. We know that from 9-11 and other disasters. We don't realize it, but we, our body knows and remembers these visual images and we feel unsafe. We carry vigilance in our nervous system. So I, I think it can't be, uh, your point is well taken that for adults, we wanna read instead of watch. We get more information. We wanna wait till the end of the day if we can, um, because it's, it's too much. Kevin, she just put me out of a job. I'll come uh, shag balls for you. <laughs> I don't miss too much. So you can just stand right under the hoop. <laughs> that's that's very true. Um, what are your some what are, what are some hacks? Your life hacks that you've done. You you went through uh, certain battles. You, you continue perhaps to a certain degree. But what are some of the changes you've made uh, in your life in your lifestyle to to help? Uh, you know, it's funny. I'll just I'll just jump right into what Dr. Apple was talking about and limiting my media exposure. Uh, if you know, not only is there a lot of misinformation out there, but you know, it's like every day. What I, I can't imagine that you know, continuing to you know absorb and digest these negative uh, you know messages, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, every single day and consuming those at such a high level can be good for you uh, in the long run. I mean, we're, we're, you know, it's a primitive thing to be exposed to threat and work yourself up and, 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 you know, feel like it's that fight or flight response all the time. And I think that's almost like depressing in, in the way that it's so draining. You know, I feel like at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm just, I just have nothing left in the tank. And you know, there's, I think for young people that can be good and bad, um, because I think there is some impressionable people out there that will try new things and figure out what triggers them as well and work on things and youth uprise. But it, I just feel like turning on the TV screen or, or, or reading my phone or whatever it may be, being on my computer, like I always, you know, differences make for, I guess, better headlines than we have in common. So, you know, more people are going to remember that and lodge that in their brains than they are, you know, something good. But for every one good thing, it, it seems like in today's world, because it's tough, 24 hour, you know, 365, seven days a week, we have to fill those spots. 
And there's a lot of negative out there in the world right now. So that's, that's one thing I do is really try to limit that. You know, we get the, every Sunday we get, oh, this is how much time you spent on your, oh, I was down 20% last week. Like that's a little, little win for me. Um, you know, but I also think I've, I've learned to, to meditate, if not only just to, uh, you know, take those 20 minutes on headspace or 10 minutes, even just like six to eight deep breaths, working out. Uh, has always been something that has been a stress reliever and to make my body feel good, you know, when I'm not feeling good up here at all. And that kind of kills two birds with one stone because not only do I get better in my basketball game, I get to, you know, feel better in my body. I feel like I get to check that off the list. Um, you know, writing, you know, I do I have a bunch of notebooks full uh, of, uh, of writing, uh, several things, whether it be reflecting on my life or stuff that I want to do with my fund, uh, reading, I love movies, I love wine. And it's just, again, I, I mentioned earlier that everybody's unique. So everybody's answer to this would likely be unique. But for me, it was just finding out what those triggers are, what's going to set me off. Okay. If I'm feeling this way, this is what I need to do. I think having a dog helps as well, but this is something that's going to continue to evolve for me because I, I don't pretend to be an expert. Um, I am just trying to, to live it, take it as it comes to me, not get too far ahead, you know, not look too far back in the rear view. Balance. Dr. Apple said it, balance. That's probably the hardest thing to find in life is like, all right, be present and find balance. So it's a, it's a never ending fight to do that. And then at the end of the day, I'll say this, paying it forward and doing something, working on something that is, you know, for me going to be a legacy. Hopefully people remember me more for what I've done away from the court and transition to away from basketball, uh, stuff that's long lasting stuff. That's not going to just be a bandaid stuff that I can say, listen, I, I knew this much, but I work with people who knew a lot more than me that were able to, to use all these resources and use the fund to make great things happen. So that makes me, feel good to pay it forward for other people. And uh, I guess that's also selfish too, to just to make myself feel better and, and, you know, working on those kind of things. And also the better I do at basketball, maybe the more people I can reach. Doctor, the floor is yours. <sighs> I so appreciate um, your sharing how you've been coping because it's so balanced. People like to have, you know, what's the answer? What's the hack? What's the one thing? Oh, it was this great therapist or, oh, it was, you know, this med. It's, it's never one thing. We, it's this balance. And when, when we're in crisis, yes, it's the medical system. It's, it's meds. It's keeping us safe. But the psychiatric care is not good at helping us heal, recover, rejuvenate, prevent. That's up to us. And no one tells us uh, how to do that. So I just want to say there is so much science, but we need, but still we need to apply it more on how exercise, nutrition, and certain types of stress can actually keep us well and prevent depression. And I'm, I'm working with a foundation. It's very um, congruent with the Kevin Love Fund. It's called the Brick, the John W. Brick Fund. And the founder's uh, brother um, died of severe mental illness. And he and his wife, Lynn Brick, have started a foundation to develop 
the science base to get some of these natural methods out there in the public so they're usable at people's fingertips. So for example, while junk food is associated with depression, and when we change people's diet toward a Mediterranean diet, it can, in certain small clinical trials so far, it can relieve depression better than drugs. So, but this is for, you know, moderate depression. But just knowing that, people don't know that, and they're, they're, they're creating a biochemical environment in their brain that is promoting this, uh, can promote depression. So biohacks. So I've been, you know, we're studying right now at UCSF, uh, high intensity interval training, meditation, paced breathing, um, and Wim Hof breathing. And we want to know, we know that there's all, you know, all of these can help with mood, but how, at what dose, at what level of depression? These are all open questions. So we're pretty excited about both understanding that we need meditation or other mind-body activities to calm the nervous system and help us with that emotional awareness, but we also need positive stress. And so that could be hot, hyperthermia, cold, this Wim Hof breathing, and the best, most accessible one, the, the short-term aerobic exercise. And that, so it's a balance. And then there's, you know, the daily balance. How do you create a sustainable day for mood? We all need that now. Those are, these are great. I'm learning so much just listening to both of you. We got a lot of audience questions. So we'll do kind of a round robin, kind of some quick hitters here. Uh, for you, doctor, how's different, how's depression different in boys against girls? I'm going to bring back our guest, Steve Hinshaw, because he's an expert on that. <laughs> so let's go very briefly here. The first 10 years of life, are the big risk period for boys in terms of autism, ADHD, Tourette's, neurodevelopmental disorders. Once you get to the preteen years with the changes of puberty and with the expectations, the unrealistic expectations that girls experience, that's the huge surge of depression and anxiety and cutting uh, and eating problems in girls. The symptoms look surprisingly similar in the sexes but at different age spans, there's different risk uh, profiles. And everything that I've heard in this wonderful discussion speaks to A, prevention, cutting out the toxic messages that teens and girls especially need to endure, getting lifestyle changes ingrained early in school curricula, having schools uh, be the places where kids can be activists and promote the kinds of, does every course need to have a letter grade? Do I have to be perfect all the time and everything? These are preventions. But in terms of treatment access, when depression goes from mild to moderate and severe, the evidence-based treatments, the medications that are needed, the cognitive behavior therapy for kids with more severe emotion dysregulation, dialectical behavior therapy, they need to go hand in hand with the lifestyle style changes and the healthier culture we all need to promote. So depression can exist in both boys and girls, but after the teenage years, girls are at twice the risk of boys and women more than men for just about the rest of the lifespan. So let's go to other questions, please. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and Kevin, tell me about this. Uh, I think a lot of people want to jump on now, the Kevin Love Fund. What's your goal here? Well, the goal, we actually, uh, you know, I mentioned my pillars falling before I had my anxiety attack, but we, we really base it around stigma. You know, you're much less likely to detect it if you don't speak about it. But on the same, at the same time, we need to continue to have these tough conversations and allow people to know that they're not alone. And they're not weird. They're not different. They're not weak to feel this way, boys or girls. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, really something to me that that almost feels like the language has to change in a way and how we approach this or how we speak to young people or even how we speak to middle age and older people uh, as we were talking, as Stephen was talking about earlier. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's the first pillar. Um, you know, education as well. We have a really cool rollout for our education program. We did a pilot of it in August and September, and we're working on the second phase of that now, which is super fun. Um, and one of the things that they're doing is writing a first person article either about themselves or about somebody within an arm's distance that's dealing with something uh, in the mental health area. Uh, and tools and research go together. I mean, we, we've, uh, you know, donated over a million dollars to, to the UCLA psych department. Uh, Dr. Eppel, you had mentioned uh, Dr. Krask. I call her badass Dr. Krask. So UCLA, <laughs> working with my alma mater from a tools and research standpoint is, uh, you know, the other two pillars and something that I'm incredibly proud of. I get to work and feel like I'm back home. But, you know, the, the network of those type of universities are extremely, extremely powerful. And, you know, for me, it's, it's uh, if I, you know, had a vision of, of where I saw us, it'd be, you know, that prevention, that early detection and intervention, I think, in, in, in young people. Because where I'm from in, in Portland, Oregon, and Oregon in general, uh, the second leading cause of death between the ages of 10 and 34, excuse me, in the, between the ages of 10 and 34 is suicide. That's right. And then a, a 2008 study, and Steve, I think you said you grew up in Ohio? I grew up in Ohio, and I went to grad school, a little school called UCLA. So <laughs> hey, there we go. There we go. We had more in common than I thought. But <laughs> Ohio, the 2008 study that ran for 10 years where uh, suicide was up 24% in the state of Ohio yeah. and in the ages of uh, 60 plus. And what, this is really what hit me and why I say young people under the age of 14, suicides up 80%. So for me, I, I remember, I mean, I wish I could write a letter to my younger self and he could absorb it and say, you know, everything's going to be okay. And these are the things that you need to do. But that early intervention, and we just talked about, you know, you know, boys from ages zero to ten, and and you know, young young women and young girls, uh, you know, right after uh, puberty and having the changes in their body and in their mind. Like we we need to have that early intervention in order for them, as I mentioned earlier, to just reach their full potential and have you know life satisfaction and and things like that and, and relationships and their job and their friends and sports and whatever it may be that they're into just get so much more out of it. Cause uh, you know, I mentioned to Dr. Apple, I know I keep saying your name a million times. I'm sorry, but that I do regret a lot looking back and I wish I didn't. It made me who I am today. It made me have the scars that I have today. It made me you know, have a lot of stress through the years, but I just think an overall life satisfaction and, and, and happiness and, and less anxiety is going to prove for us to be, you know, so much better, better in every walk of life. It's not just going to be an overall fix for, for mental health, but I think it'll be a fix for a number of things to, you know, really just make a positive impact on the world from a really broad stroke. And, and Raj, I'm going to cut in as Kevin's finishing, and I know there's a million more questions. It's not a sign of weakness to say that you're feeling crappy and bad and overwhelmed. It's a sign of strength because that's when you reach out and that's when you get support. If, if Kevin has one message, I would implore everybody to dwell on that would be it. 
I think that's it. I, I think you guys have all said it so well and, and just you're sharing your stories. And we'll do one last question. We got a minute left here. One last question from the, from the audience. We've gotten a lot. Uh, Kevin, any most memorable stories of people coming up to you, perhaps how you've impacted their life? Does one story stand out? I just, yeah, I mean, listen, it, what's been amazing for me, and it's funny, like I, I've, it took me to about 28 years old in that time to like, I was always a dry person. And then I just start crying all the time. I, I became like really emotional when I would see kids come up to me at a game or have a, a sign that wasn't even about basketball. Like they're basketball fans, but they're not, it's not about basketball. And these kids are coming up and, you know, every, everybody's going through something and, and we have a kid and that was in Phoenix. And then uh, another uh, young female, young girl came up um, and she, you know, had her father had reached out to me. And this is the, the beautiful thing about social media. Like I said, good and bad is that he, had, the father had messaged me saying that his daughter was, wasn't eating. She was having panic attacks all the time. She was not making it to school. Um, is there anything that you, you know, can say to her to make her feel better? And I said, all right, follow. I'll do you one better. Why don't you come to the game? I'll host you guys, give you as many tickets as you need. Come sit in my seats. Come sit in a few other seats, and I'll talk to her one-on-one. -on -one. Wow. So she had come to the game, you know, and her father's there. She's super shy, wouldn't talk to her. Or, excuse me, wouldn't talk to me. We take her out on the floor. I'm shooting a couple. She hands me uh, her little good luck charm. I've been forgetting what it is at the time. It's still sitting in my locker. And she's like, oh, have this. This is what I do when I, when I feel you know, sad or feel lonely or feel this anxiety. So a year later, they're going, uh, or they're going on their Christmas break. It's around like the second or third week of December, if I remember correctly. It's been a while. And her father reaches out to me and said, She's been getting almost straight A's in school. Her attendance is way up and she's made a number of new friends in the past year. And while I don't take full credit for that at all, because you have to do the work and you have to understand that, you know, look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm not different. I'm not weird. I'm not, you know, weak for, for doing this, but you know, she had to do the work and her father was just like you, you had inspired her. So it's that I'll get back to it. That, that, that hope, inspiring hope and doing things that are long lasting is, is really cool. And I just think it could be anybody, the reach of, of anybody it doesn't have to be a, a basketball player, an entertainer, a, a, you know, music actor, whatever it may be. It can be anybody that can make an impact in, in somebody's life. And uh, I think that's something to, to be taken away from all of this as well. And, you know, it makes me, makes me feel good. You know, that depressed, you know, stuff hits me and I don't want to get out of bed. I just, I remember that, that it's, it's, it's all bigger than myself. Kevin, uh, you, you've made us smile, you've made us cry, and you've, made us, uh, you, you've taught us a lot in these last 60 minutes. We, we appreciate it. We really do. Phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Hinshaw, thank you for your time. Uh, Dr. Eppel, thank you for your insight. Uh, it, it's, it's really been, we could go on for three hours, really, or three days, but, but thank you so much. I think, Kevin, I speak for everyone here. You are making a huge impact off the floor. We wish you the best also in your NBA career. Against, except for the Warriors, we wish you that we, you win every game. <laughs> uh, our thanks to all of you uh, and to UCSF. Uh, this program has been part of the Commonwealth Club Series, of course, on mental health, dedicated in memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker with the support of the John Pritzker Family Fund. We thank all our viewers. We hope to see you back here online and soon, hopefully soon, 
back in person at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. I'm Raj Mathai of NBC Bay Area, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is virtual. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.